ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show. I want to thank Goldman Sachs Asset Management, one of our sponsors this week. Joining me will be Thomas Petterfee, founder and chairman of Interactive Brokers, who, of course, is one of the world's premier brokerage firms. And if you think back to the fall of 2019, when all of the major brokerages went commission-free, the question at that time was, well, how are they doing that? How can these firms make money if they're not charging for trades? And the answer was, well, there are actually a number of ways they can make money. Uh, they can pay investors peanuts for the cash sitting in their brokerage accounts while the brokers invested at higher rates. They can lend out client securities to short sellers. They can cross-sell other proprietary products and services. There are a number of ways they can make money. But to me, this is when the topic of payment for order flow really started drawing some attention. Now, payment for order flow. This is when a broker routes client trades to someone like Citadel or Virtu, and in return, the brokers get paid for that. So someone like Citadel will pay Robinhood for the privilege of executing Robinhood client trades, which that raises a whole nother set of questions. Why is Citadel willing to do that? And is this detrimental to investors in some way? And I feel like this entire topic sort of simmered in the background until earlier this year when it became a much bigger story during the GameStop drama, uh, with Robinhood and Citadel in particular. Uh, there, there were questions over conflicts of interest, uh, transparency. This became a hot topic for Congress. It's something SEC Chairman Gary Gensler is now looking into. And the long story short is, I've tried my best to become educated on this. And quite honestly, I have found it extremely difficult to get straight answers. So I could not be more excited this week. We are going to hear from truly one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet on this topic in Thomas. And I'm going to ask him all of the questions you want answered. So he'll join me here in just a bit. Also on the show will be Chris Sullivan, president of McMillan Sullivan Communications. And I've got to say, this will be interesting as well. Chris helps ETF issuers with marketing and public relations. So essentially, he helps ETF firms get their message out to the market. And if you think about how competitive the ETF space is, this is obviously extremely important. So Chris is going to provide what I think will be a fascinating behind-the-scenes look at how ETF issuers try to engage with the media and ultimately with investors. Now, to start this week, I have Tom Hendrickson on the line with me from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Tom is president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. Our topic this week, thematic ETFs. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this week. Great, Nate. How are you? Happy to be here. I'm doing well and, and really excited to cover all of these uh, really interesting topics this week. And of course, our topic is thematic ETFs. 
And, you know, here's the thing. Like we have in the past, we're going to use this unique lens that ETF Trends and ETF Database provides because you have this amazing data where you can look at site traffic and site engagement, and that provides a real-time window into how investors and advisors are behaving. Uh, I honestly, I've got to tell you, I'm infatuated with this data now, which probably won't surprise anyone who remembers uh, my obsession with Robintrack.net. Uh, but but look, nevertheless, as a good starting point, do you first want to talk a little bit about the growth of thematic ETFs in general? I, I mean, this area continues to be one of the hottest stories in ETFs, and the numbers do seem to back that up. Yeah, and, and really happy to, to lend uh, our viewpoint there, Nate. So obviously, as you mentioned, we have a really unique position and collect a lot of information based on how engaged our user base is across ETF Trends and ETF Database. So I'll share some of the insight as it relates to how engagement is changing and, and it changes as it relates to specific ETFs within the thematic space. But before I do that, to your point, let's let's kind of set the table a little bit for what are thematic ETFs? And, and this, I get really excited, Nate, and you, know, you and I talk uh, uh, to, from time to time, and this is a topic of conversation of ours that kind of like runs through a, a, a number of the conversations that we have. And I get excited because I'm, I think that there is a trend to sort of ETF 3.0 and sort of this next wave of innovation within the space, and it's already taking root. So what the thematic ETFs allow investors and advisors to do, and ultimately advisors and their clients to do, is get exposure by marrying all of the great attributes of ETFs that we've you know, come to know and love, transparency, tick-by-tick -tick trading, uh, you know, relatively low cost, instant diversification, all of those great attributes, but really honing in on not this uh, cap-weighted, broad beta exposure, but something that's more specific to a larger trend or theme that's playing out within a certain area within the investable world without taking on any single, uh, single stock risk. So you've got that diversification component, but you're kind of overweight the theme. And so this has really taken hold in the ETF industry over the last let's say four years. So I'll, I'll give you some statistics, Nate. So going back to 2018, uh, and, and, the, and there's, there's different ways to slice and dice this. I, I'm sure that there may be folks who think that this is, um, you know, how you categorize which fund. There's a little bit of an art to that, but I'll, I'll talk about how we, how we view it at ETF database and ETF trends. So in 2018, there's about $40 million within this space. 27 funds launched that year for a total of about 113 funds. That grew to about $50 billion in 2019. And where we saw the real huge adoption in these types of ETFs was in 2020, when there was another 30 funds taking us to 171 funds, but 70, almost $73 billion came into that complex of funds. So if we look at where we are as of, I think the data is as of August, uh, uh, 18th, there are about 209 what we consider thematic ETF funds, and there's about $160 billion. Year to date, there's about $35 billion that have, has flowed into this space. And, and just to give you a sense, and this is kind of, you know, hopefully um, for folks who are wrapping their arms around the concept, I'm going to rattle off a few of the, the types of themes that you can get exposure to from this type of thematic ETF. So robotics and artificial intelligence, fintech, genomics, internet, space, mobility, low carbon, digital economy, blockchain. These are the types of areas that the ETF issuer community has heard from their audience and their users that they're looking to get exposure to through the ETF wrapper. And we're seeing some of that as well as it relates to the research that's happening across ETF trends and ETF database. Yeah, I always say, I mean, the goal with thematic investing and thematic ETFs is to attempt to capture these broader, uh, more disruptive trends, longer term trends, not fads. And you'll see that these typically cut across traditional sector classifications or uh, geographical boundaries. And to your point, I think last year was really the coming out party for thematic ETFs. Of course, ARK Invest led the way there. Now, I, I know you have two lists for us. And as I understand it, the, the first list is the five thematic ETFs 
experiencing the largest year-over-year increase in user engagement at ETF Trends and at ETF Database, right? So these saw the biggest traffic spikes over the past 12 months. Take us through these. Sure. Yeah, that's great, Nate. And so uh, a, a quick caveat. So we, we've kind of taken out some of the noisiness in the data as it relates to base effects. So there, you know, statistically significant traffic happened last year and this year within this suite of tickers that I'll go through. And the and I'm I am giving the list in the the largest percent year over year growth. So not as to say that these were the ones with the highest amount of traffic, but the largest growth year over year, um, considering some base effects and throwing some of the the noise out. So I'll, I'll, I'll I love Nate your your uh, David Letterman top ten approach. I'll start with number five. That's the Invesco Wilder Hill Clean Energy ETF ticker PBW. Experienced um, you know significant growth year over year. It's about a, a 1.7 billion dollar uh, fund uh, with a lot of those funds coming in within the last year. So there's a pretty high correlation there between you know the funds flowing and, and the engagement. Uh, number four is the Vanek Vector Rare Earth Strategic Metals ETF ticker REMX. Um, you know, a, a little bit less than a billion dollar fund. Significant flows coming in. You know, this year and, and specifically year to date. Uh, again, a lot of interest from the advisor community in that ticker. So number three, uh, another Invesco product, the Invesco Solar ETF TAN. Uh, bumping up against a $3 billion fund, half of which has been accumulated within about the last year and significant flows already year to date. Uh, you, you mentioned ARC and, and them leading the charge as it relates to you know, growth in the thematic space. No surprise to anyone, ARKK, uh, the flagship innovation fund from the ARK Invest team, uh, number two on the list. And number one is the Global X Autonomous and Electric Vehicle ETF ticker DRIV, uh, over a billion dollars in that fund, most of which has come within the last year. Yeah, I think what's interesting to me as you go through those and, and what stands out the most is just how strong the trends were around some of those ETFs last year. Because you look, uh, ARKK, TAN, PBW, those were some of the biggest ETF darlings of 2020. And so clearly the interest in those has carried over into this year. I think that's that, that's noteworthy. Now, uh, the other one, REMX, that's the uh, the Vanek Rare Earths and Strategic Metals ETF. That, I guess, make, makes a lot of sense to me this year because you look at that, that's up, what, what 65, 70% this year. So that makes sense more recently. Drive's interesting. Uh, you know, that's the uh, Global X Autonomous and Electric Vehicles ETF. I don't think that's up nearly as much, but uh, maybe investors are looking ahead. It's an interesting group. Yeah, it absolutely is, Nate. And uh, to, your, to your point, I was surprised that some of the, like, if we would have done this and gone back 2019 over, or sorry, 2020 over 2019, the growth on growth, you know, to your point about some of those big stories that were happening mid last year, August of last year, for them to have significant growth going into this year, I think to your point about, thematics allowing thematic ETFs allowing investors an opportunity to get a seat at a longer term trend. You know, that was one of the insights that that kind of popped out to me was, you know, some of these things, they are not fads and there are, you know, I think of the innovation space and, and some of the, you know, key drivers of, of, of how that's playing out. And that's not a quarter over quarter story. It's it's a, you know, five, seven, 10 year story of how the world really is changing. And I think that through the data, the advisor community, some of the most discerning people on earth are suggesting that they're gonna to continue to lean in and research those areas because of, uh, despite some noise within the space, maybe there's longer term opportunity that they need to position their clients for. Okay, now the second list you have is the top five thematic ETFs in terms of quarter over quarter engagement growth. Uh, what, what does that look like? Sure, and I'll, I'll go relatively quick here, Nate. Actually, so Drive, uh, DRV, the Global X product, that is number five on the quarter over quarter list. The only um, you know, dual representation on, on both lists. Uh, the, another Global X product, number four, the Lithium and Battery ETF, ticker LIT. Uh, number three, the First Trust Water ETF, and, and that we're gonna see a little bit of a water theme in this list. Uh, that's popping up in a couple of different spots. 
Uh, number two on the list is also a water ETF, the Invesco Water Resources ETF, ticker PHO. And then number one is the Amplify Online Retail ETF, iBuy. Uh, so online retail and, and internet exposure for sort of a changing uh, consumer behavior. iBuy is interesting to me, just given that, you know, the narrative has been around how the online retail trend might subside a bit with things opening back up, the economic reopening. Uh, you know, plus you look at the performance of that ETF, it's about flat on the year. Uh, but but maybe with a Delta variant, advisors are looking back at uh, at that trend. Of course, growth has made a little bit of comeback. There's definitely some growthy plays in there. Uh, Lit, so the Global X Lithium and Battery Tech ETF, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's up uh, over 35%. There's been a lot of talk about how the infrastructure bill could help there, right, with funding around yeah. electric vehicles and, and such. Tom, one thing I'm curious about, I mean, Talk, talk about the engagement you're seeing with thematic ETFs as a whole versus traditional sector ETFs. Can you look at that? I mean, how, how does that behavior compare? Yeah, it's it's fascinating, Nate. And so, um, you know, our our director of research and CIO, Dave Nodding, likes to say that thematics are the new sectors. And so it's not to say as there's still a lot of, of uh, assets within sectors. But when we compare as a group the thematic space versus you know the traditional sectors uh, broken down into the individual ticker level engagement we see significantly more engagement in the suite of thematic etfs even considering and, and kind of um looking at how there's obviously a lot more thematic etfs but just net engagement in those areas is much higher in the area of thematics and and i would love to unpack that a little bit with you because i think there's a lot to be to, to learn about and, and to think about it as it relates to advisor behavior and, and what that means well the first thing is i mean i think in terms of investors um using thematics in a portfolio i know uh, bloomberg's eric balchunas he likes to talk about how investors and advisors have moved towards this approach where the core of their portfolios is cheap beta right, a bunch of Vanguard or iShares ETFs or whatever. And then what they'll do is they'll sprinkle on uh, what he calls a little hot sauce with, with things like thematic ETFs. I completely agree with that because it used to be advisors would load up with traditional active managers in the core of their portfolio. Unfortunately, a lot of those were expensive closet index funds. Uh, but I think what's happened now is advisors are perfectly comfortable getting that primary exposure through cheap, boring index ETFs, and then they'll spice up the portfolio with thematics. I think that's what's going on. Yeah, no, I, I agree, Nate. And, and I think the other thing that's happening, and, and it's just really sort of a sub bullet to your broader theme, is that uh, there's a lot of education that has to happen based on the number of new funds and the number of areas in which, you know, are readily accessible via the ETF vehicle nowadays. You know, I, I kind of rattled off the number of funds that we're launching. Uh, you know, this year we're sitting at an open close ratio of a little north of two. So for, for every one fund that's closing, two are opening. And that means that, you know, the role of the advisor or, or the educator to their clients, they need to continue to do research in some of these, you know, new and, and growing areas of opportunity. And whether they become core or satellite or exactly how they use them, they need to be conversationally fluent in understanding, you know, what those options are if they do come up in a client conversation. And I think that we're, we're seeing that, you know, the time-tested educational research, need for tools, need for diligence, open up the hood. Uh, part of that is happening within the thematic space because advisors always do that, especially when there are so many new opportunities for them to talk about, look at and consider uh, you know, including somewhere within the portfolio. A hundred percent. That's well said. I mean, I'll tell you from an advisor perspective, um, we hear about thematic ETFs from clients all the time. And some listeners have probably heard me talk about this before, but we see a lot of value in thematic ETFs simply from a behavioral standpoint. And the way I always describe this is that I, I believe most investors have some semblance of a gambler inside of them. You, you know, they want to roll the dice a little bit. And they also want to have something to talk about at the uh, cocktail party. And what we have found is that if we allocate, say, 3 to 5% of a portfolio to two thematic ETFs, 
that actually helps investors stick with the other 95% globally diversified portfolio because the, the client is scratching that gambling edge. And I always say you can have the best portfolio in the world, but it doesn't matter if an investor can't stick with it. And what we have found is that thematic ETFs help here, and we see value in that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, Nate, you're, you're talking about how you build your portfolios? 100%, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's kind of like the, the, the other analogy of, of uh, you know, the, the, the food and the eating analogy is that, you know, the meat and potatoes and vegetables, you, you want that to be the, the vast majority of what you're consuming. But a little dessert on the side or, or you know, that, that kind of keeps you coming back to the table. So if, if you can pair those two things in a way that ultimately are going to uh, result in good outcomes, then that sounds like that's what you're doing uh, in your day to day as an advisor. That's that's really cool. Yeah, we've said, I mean, to your food analogy, if you're somebody who's on a diet and you want to stick with that diet, occasionally it's good to have a cheat day. Right. And that'll help you stick with the diet over the long term because you can have the big ice cream sundae or, or, or slice of cake. Uh, Tom, just a couple of minutes left here. Just so we're not viewed as thematic ETFs cheerleaders here. I do think it's important to point out that clearly there's no guarantee that thematic ETFs will perform well. And I always like uh, Morningstar's Ben Johnson, the, the, the way he lays this out. He says, look, let's be realistic. Investors in thematic ETFs are basically making a trifecta bet. So they have to be right on three things. They have to pick a winning theme. They have to pick an ETF that actually captures that theme, right? Something more pure play. And they have to invest at the right point. They have to get the timing right. And, you know, the point here is that's not necessarily easy. I think we need to point that out. No, absolutely, Nate. And, and, and to the cheerleader point, that's absolutely not what we're doing. And in fact, I think that what this data is suggesting is that advisors, again, being some of the most discerning individuals on the planet, are leaning into the research process, which I view as really helpful and ultimately a positive because they're opening up the hood, they're understanding these things, they're unpacking them before making any investment decisions. And that's, you know, that's going to be true today, it was true 10 years ago, it'll be true in, in 10 years, is that the need for that diligence and that research and understanding what you're buying, whether it's within thematic ETFs or, or any anywhere else within the ETF ecosystem, I think that that's going to be a stalwart. Um, the, the other the other thing and, and I, I, you know, getting excited about the ETF wrapper and the innovation within the space, I think the thematic uh, growth and, and some of the, the new and innovative things that are happening with that space, that probably foretells some of the new ways in which ETF wrapper is going to allow advisors, investors, and, uh, and even institutions to start employing them more deeply within their portfolio construction. And I think that that's um, really, really positive for the industry and really, really positive for, for investors because more, more choice, more access while leaning on great research, great diligence, opening up the hood, understanding what you buy those two things are, are ultimately uh, going to push us forward in, in a positive way. Extremely well said, Tom. Uh, hey, look, interesting insight as always. You know I love going through this data that you have. Appreciate the time this week. Thank you. Thanks, Nate. Talk to you soon. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
I am now joined by Thomas Petterfee, founder and chairman of Interactive Brokers, who is one of the world's premier brokerage firms and trading platforms. In a nutshell, they provide automated trade execution and custody of securities, commodities, foreign exchange in over 135 markets around the globe. They typically work with sophisticated individual investors, hedge funds, prop traders, financial advisors, and simply put, there are few, if any, who better understand market structure and this entire topic of payment for order flow than Thomas, who's now on the line with me. Thomas, it's a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. It's a very kind introduction. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so look, I know you've been talking about payment for order flow for literally decades, but this is a topic that's still new to many. And I'll tell you from my perspective, I have found this area incredibly difficult to get straight answers on. There seems to be a lot of controversy and misunderstanding around this. It's a polarizing topic. And so my hope is that you can shed some light on this and explain what's really going on behind the scenes. Now, before we do that, I thought it'd be helpful to start by just discussing the basic brokerage business model, because that clearly plays into why payment for order flow exists and some of the motivations here. And so I'll set the table like this. There are several ways brokerages make money besides payment for order flow. There's charging commissions, which obviously those are going away for many brokers, which is why we're talking about this. Uh, there's also net interest, which is where brokers pay, say, 25 basis points on client cash and then invest that cash for their own benefit at 2% or whatever, pocketing the difference. There's securities lending revenue, uh, charging for margin, some brokers sell branded investment products like mutual funds and ETFs. Some offer investment advice. Uh, to begin, from your perspective, how do you think about these various revenue streams and how they factor into the type of client experience you want to deliver? So as far as different revenue streams are concerned, uh, their importance varies by broker. At interactive brokers, the most important revenue is commission even though people who want to uh, have zero commissions can get zero commissions. But all brokers charge commissions on option trades, and these are becoming even more popular. So in other words, uh, some brokers offer zero commissions on stocks. We also offer zero commissions on stocks, but the difference is that... Uh, on zero commission orders, all brokers sell the or the customers' orders to high frequency traders. I, in many, with many brokers, you don't have a choice. They they just charge zero commissions and sell your orders. With interactive brokers, you have a choice. You can pick zero commissions and then sell your orders, or you can pay a small commission and we execute your order. Uh, we try to find uh, uh, another side for your order at a better price. Okay, so to your point, now, yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, interest income is another uh, uh, revenue source, of course. At the moment, uh, interest rates are near zero, so it's it's not as important. But an uh, uh, important component of interest income is short interest. And so when a client wants to sell short, he has to borrow the stock. And when the stock is difficult to borrow, there would be high interest on it. Uh, this is the case, for example, on meme stocks like AMC and GameStop, uh, where there is a high short interest, so the stocks are difficult to find, to borrow, and then there's a sharp, uh, high interest rate on them. So at Interactive Brokers, we share the interest with the client 50-50 when the client agrees that we can lend out their fully paid stocks and, of course, guarantee the, uh, we guarantee the return of the shares. Uh, many brokers also charge a custody fee from 5 to 25 basis points. We do not charge such a fee. Then there are, of course, proprietary products from which brokers earn fees. 
of IBKR we long ago decided that we we'll have no such products because they inevitably lead to conflict of interest sooner or later. So obviously there are a lot of different business models here. Brokers can take a wide variety of approaches. Let's get to this topic of payment for order flow and exactly where that fits. Because from my perspective, we had the launch of uh, Robinhood in 2015. They came right out of the gate offering commission-free trading. And then in 2019, we saw most of the major brokerages follow suit. And I think that really began to magnify this entire discussion around how brokerages make money, which ultimately that led to this topic of payment for order flow. Now, payment for order flow isn't new, right? This isn't some new innovation that Robinhood concocted. Do do you want to talk a little bit about the history of payment for order flow and, and perhaps explain exactly what payment for order flow is what what happens when an investor advisor hits the buy button online at whatever brokerage you're using right so so let me start with a bit of uh, background Uh, when i went to trade on the american stock exchange i became a market maker and that was in 1977 that was uh, 44 years ago uh, a market maker is supposed to provide liquidity continuously buy and sell for his own account. So I started out as a computer programmer, and my idea was to automate trading, so I quickly wrote a computer program to provide buy and sell orders and hired many people to work on the different exchange floors to work with me to execute orders. By the year 2000, we were the largest market-making firm in the world since we were connected to all the electronic exchanges in Europe and Asia. Interactive Brokers, the brokerage firm that we started in 93, was growing slowly on the side. After the 2009 market crash, several other firms went into the automated market-making business and started to buy order flow from retail brokers and pay to execute they paid them to execute their orders. But actually even before that it was Bernie Madoff who first started to buy orders from other brokers and execute those orders. Uh, he, he used that to shield his his uh, Ponzi scheme. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, this practice of buying order flow became more widespread. Fewer and fewer orders came to the exchanges, and it became difficult for us as market makers on the exchanges to earn a living. We did not want to also buy orders or trade against uh, our customers uh, because uh, we didn't like the conflict of interest. The conflict is very clear. The worst price the market maker gives to the retail order, the more money he earns. So we decided to sell the market making business and we remain a poor, pure broker today. So that's basically. Now, the question is, what is the obligation of the market maker receiving the order? Uh, There are several exchanges in the USA today, and they all trade the same stock. On each exchange, there is a highest bid or buy price and a lowest bid or offer or sale price. I'm sorry, a lowest offer or sales price. This is called the best bid and offer, or BBO. When you take the highest bid from all the exchanges and the lowest offer from all the exchanges, that is called the national best bid and offer, or NBBO. So the SEC, or Securities Exchange Commission, that regulates securities trading in the country, has a rule that all stock trades have to be at a price that is at or inside the NBBO. So when a market maker executes an order, the execution must be inside 
the NBBO. So let me ask you this. If that's the case from the market maker's perspective, someone like Citadel or Virtu, what is their motivation here? Why do they want this order flow? So the NBBO is rather wide. As a result, fewer and fewer orders compete with each other on the exchanges. It gets wider and wider. So when a market maker executes an order, he turns a profit. So the market maker will buy just slightly inside the the NBBO, namely slightly above the bid, and he will sell just very, very slightly under the offer. Okay, well, and I guess... They cut, they, so, so market makers currently pay something of a, between 25 and 35% of the net of the profit uh, to the brokers. So, they, so the market maker says, makes... Uh, makes $10 on a trade, he pays $3 to the broker. So the broker basically still gets uh, his com- commission, but it's it's called payment for order. Flow. Well, let's just boil this down then. In your opinion, is the practice of payment for order flow good or bad for investors? Well, <laughs> it depends <laughs> And how you look at it. So uh, compared to executing the order right at the MBBO, the customer saves a tiny bit because, as I said, the the high-frequency trader or market maker will give a slightly better price uh, for the order. Uh, but the fact is that there are even better prices uh, at which um, and, and other places with uh, better prices where orders can be executed. There are so-called dark pools where prices are not shown, where orders can be executed relative to the NBBO. For example, we at IBKR have a dark pool where we get institutional orders. We explain to the institutions that, look, we have all these retail order flow coming in. Why don't you put your buy and sell orders into our dark pool relative to whatever the MBBO happens to be, and we will just execute against you. So we, we are this, with these kinds of arrangements, we achieve a situation where the retail order is executed against the institute, institutional order uh, right at the middle of the MBBO. So both sides benefit. Uh, so, yeah, relative to that, it is not good for a uh, payment for order flow. is not good for a, for, a, um, for a customer. Is there any way to quantify the cost here? Because, not to pick on Robinhood, but I went to their website yesterday, and they show that over 95% of their orders are executed at the national best bid and offer, or better. And for every 100 shares traded, uh, they state that they save customers $1.09 on average. And if investors see data like this, you know, that looks pretty good. That doesn't seem like a problem. How, how do we gauge the true cost or impact here? So, so as, as I said, so if, if, a, if Robinhood gets a dollar, Robinhood gets uh, a, a high payment because their orders are really uh, very, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> not, not very smart. So... Uh, I would think that the average customer of Robinhood loses four dollars on execution, and the and the uh, Robinhood gets uh, one dollar and nine cents of that four dollars. What about from an investor behavior perspective? Do you think the practice of payment for order flow ultimately encourages more trading, which then that could be detrimental to investors? So, well, I mean, you know, all, and any business is, 
is motivated to encourage uh, uh, customers to to do more, right? So, so we all want to sell more or uh, uh, goods and services. So, of course, brokers want to encourage uh, their customers to trade more. Uh, well, let me ask well, you. On, on the, go yeah, ahead. Okay, no, no, go, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, on the long run, uh, I would think that uh, I, I would um, I would think that frequent trading is 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 not very good unless somebody is. That's what they do for a living and really know how to do it. So there are people who can who can trade for a living, like like I as a market maker when on the exchange floor I was making a living uh, trading. Uh, but that's you know that you have to be very very uh, devoted to it and and, and and really focus on it. And uh, uh, few I I don't recommend for people to do that. I, what I recommend is people should uh, do serious research so on all these brokers, brokerage platforms. There is an awful lot of data on which people can do very, very serious research, become become an expert at a certain industry that, that for some reason uh, somebody may be already familiar with. Look at all the companies in that industry and figure out which is the best value available among those companies and which is the worst. And the, the way I used to make money and still do sometimes is I, I buy the best and short the worst. And, and, you know, I increase the position as the two prices go apart and decrease it as they come together. Thomas, just a couple minutes left here. Everything we, we've covered aside, can we say the industry has at least taken a small step forward over the past few years and that it used to be investors paid trading commissions and had their orders rotted for payment, whereas now at least the commissions are gone for, from a lot of brokerages? Is that progress? Well, generally, electronification in the, in the, in the business is, is a huge progress because, let's face it, uh, so in two, 20 years ago, even Schwab was charging $30 commission So on a stock trade. So today they charge zero, and maybe the customer still loses about $5 or $6 on a trade. So it's, it's, it's $6, so it's $30. So there is certainly progress. And that is the reason why trading volumes keep increasing and trading is becoming more popular. And uh, I think that's a good thing because I, 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 I like uh, an economy in which many, many people uh, participate by doing their research on, on providers of the goods and services that people use. And before I let you go, anything that you think should happen from a regulatory perspective regarding payment for order flow, whether the SEC or whomever, should changes be made, or does this all come down to relying on education and sort of the free market working this all out? So I I uh, spoke to uh, Chairman Gensler on this, uh, SEC Chairman Gensler on this issue, and he explained that he felt that he really had to do something about uh, this situation. But I think it is very difficult to do anything because payment for order flow has always been, it has been the practice for 100 years on Wall Street with one big exception, namely with conventional brokerage firms like Goldman Sachs or Citibank or UBS or J.P. Morgan. There's a sales department and there's a trading department. So the sales department gets in the customer order, sends it to the trading department, the trading department executes the order and sends it back to the sales department to notify the customer. In other words, they internalize that they trade against the customer order also but since it's all inside one firm, there is not, not an overt payment being made. So, 
So if, if, if the SEC were to prohibit payment for order flow, the practice of payment for order flow, what would happen is that the market makers would merge with the, with the brokers and they, they would, it would all come into one firm and then what will the SEC do? So it's, it's, it's either overt or it's, it's, uh, it's not overt and it's, when it's hidden, then people are not aware of it and everybody is happy. Well, Thomas, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Greatly enjoy the conversation this week. Again, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. That was Thomas Petterfee, founder and chairman of Interactive Brokers. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. I'm now joined by Chris Sullivan, president of McMillan Sullivan Communications, who's a public relations firm serving a wide range of clients. And in particular, they specialize in financial services and asset management. So think hedge funds, mutual funds, investment banks, private equity, fintech, and yes, ETF issuers. They have a number of high profile ETF clients. And I thought it'd be interesting having Chris take us behind the scenes a little bit, provide some insight into how ETF issuers get their stories out to market and engage with investors, which isn't quite as easy as you might think. And uh, Chris is now on the line with me from New York. Chris, thanks for joining me this week. Thanks for having me on, Nate. And I got to say, I love the uh, the Weezer intro. I was going to say you have way too many Radiohead fans on this show, so... <laughs> little variety in our alternative rock is never a bad thing. Well, ironically, uh, the previous guest uh, was introduced with Radiohead. So we have both <laughs> this week. Uh, but, but look, I've got to say, this is a bit of a uh, unique twist having you on as a guest. You're typically lining these conversations up for me. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a little outside my comfort zone. Usually <laughs> I'm the one who's telling people like, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, you're going to go in, you're going to do great. And um We'll see if that actually holds up for me. I'm sure my clients will let me know if I don't. Well, as I mentioned, I just thought it'd be interesting hearing your perspective on ETF marketing because everyone knows how competitive the space is, right? There's a reason it's called the Terror Dome. And you look, on one end, we have these three big ETF issuers who have a lot of scale, a lot of marketing muscle. But then on the other end, there are plenty of smaller and mid-sized firms that are finding success. And obviously the products they offer, the ETFs, those have to be good. They have to be compelling and something investors want, but investors also have to know those products exist to begin with and and then actually want to buy them. So I I guess start there. Talk about the competitive dynamics within the industry and and perhaps the challenges that creates from a marketing perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's it's probably important to, to set a little bit of groundwork around kind of what we talk about when we talk about marketing and when I talk about public relations, because I'll probably kind of jump in and out of both topics um, today. You know, I, I would say the way I think about it, when I think about marketing, I think about you know, firms, issuers going directly to you know, the end customer, whether that's retail, whether that's advisors, whether that's institutions. You're trying to form those kinds of direct connections that lead to good conversations and ultimately to inflows into the fund. When I talk about public relations, you know, usually what I'm talking about there is trying to make connections with those people that have a powerful third-party platform. You know, in most cases, we're talking about the media, um, where you can work with them to, to leverage the voice and the access that they have to help tell your story. 
But you're absolutely right. When it comes to kind of both sides of that coin, you need to have a compelling product. You need to have a solid story. You need to be able to explain that story well, which often means you have to have a very strong spokesperson to go out there or spokespeople uh, to really explain to the media and to the marketplace why they should care about what you're doing, what makes you unique, and the problems that you're solving. And just you know, to your point about the big three, you know, this, this does come up a lot. And you know, in a lot of conversations I have, the question I have for people is, well, let's say you're, you're never going to supplant the big three. Let's, let's say that nobody ever will. What, what is success? What is success to you, to your colleagues, to your firm? Is it carving out a very specific niche with a very specific strategy? Is it building a brand that reaches across different investor types and allows you to build a strong, sustainable business? You know, there's, there's a lot of questions that I think people need to ask before they even get out there and try to tell their story. So they understand what their story is and they understand the best channels to use to get that story out there. So with a firm like yours, talk about the menu of options you offer. So if an ETF issuer, they, they show up at your door, what does the process look like in order to move forward? How do you get to know them? How do you put a plan together? What, what's the process? Sure. Well, the, the initial process is really we try to do a deep dive with the key stakeholders at the ETF issuer, or we work with a number of, of ETF service providers as well. Same kind of starting point. We want to get to know who they are. We want to get to know what their plans are, what their goals are. We want to do our own bit of competitive analysis and see, you know, knowing what we know across the landscape, where is the potential fit here? What space are they looking to fill? And you know, how can we help them to, to really tailor a program that's going to make the most sense for them? Um, and, and that tailoring of the program is really key. There's not really a one-size-fits-all approach to what we do. Um, it's really going to depend on what it is that they see that you know, makes their story unique and how we can help them pull those pieces out. So once we've had that initial conversation, if it's kind of mutually agreed that there's a fit and we want to work together and we don't have a conflict with somebody else that we're already working with, we'll put together a plan for the client. Usually that starts with a, a three- to six-month roadmap of, what we want to do, what we think we're going to need from the client in order to be successful, what we're going to, to you know, depend on from them, what we're going to bring to the table, and then where we're going to go, how we're going to get out there, which media outlets we're going to leverage so that everyone has a, a pretty fair sense going in of what the program is going to look like and what the expectations are going to be from both sides. Out of curiosity, how did you become so entrenched in the ETF space? Is there a backstory here? Or did the business just sort of evolve in that direction? You know, so I had been in financial communications back in the early 2000s. Uh, I was in-house with a mutual fund and life insurance company. And I loved it so much that I very quickly left and went back to graduate school trying to find a lane to do literally anything else. Um, came out of grad school, needed to find a job, and there was an opening here at Macmillan, and I took it knowing it was going to bring me back to finance. And what I found was actually that you know, the founder uh, of the firm, Mike Macmillan, had built this really interesting client roster of people who were actually doing these really compelling things. When I got there, it was 2005. We hadn't yet gotten into the ETF space, but around 2006, 2007, we started to have some really interesting conversations with different firms and Mike you know, basically assigned me a, a couple of those clients out of the gate, and it was a really quick kind of ramp-up period. Um, you know, I had a lot to learn. There was clearly a lot, as your listeners know, that goes on underneath the surface of an ETF, which kind of at its face is a relatively simple product, but there's so many moving parts that actually make it so interesting and, and so viable and valuable. That uh, I found that I actually was really getting interested in this. And so every you know, new client that, that kind of came to our door, I would get involved with. And over time, it became one of the spaces where I found I was spending a, a pretty significant uh, chunk of my time and continue to do so now, even with you know, all the other areas that you mentioned at the start that we're working with. But you know, it, it's definitely been, uh, I felt like in a lot of ways, you know, we as a firm have kind of grown up with the ETF industry, thinking back on 06, 07, and just how much has changed and how much innovation has taken place. And in the PR world, how much the media landscape has changed over that time. 
um, there has been no lack of interesting things to work on. So, Chris, given the competitive playing field we, we were discussing earlier, I, I'd love to know what's working best right now from a marketing and PR perspective. And you don't have to give away your entire playbook, but what, what's the basic recipe for success right now? Well, I think you know the basic recipe for PR success comes down to what is it you have to say about what it is you are trying to provide to the marketplace. I think all too often um, with new issuers, even with, with some established issuers that are bringing funds to market, there, there's this expectation that, you know, kind of paraphrasing Field of Dreams, you know, we built it so the investors are going to come. And that, that absolutely is, is not the case. Uh, you have to have a really strong plan to get your story out there. And I think it goes back to those two, uh, you know, call them what you will, disciplines I was talking about before, marketing and PR. Uh, and making sure that those two groups, and obviously they're going to be smaller groups at a, a smaller firm, they're going to be incrementally larger at a larger firm, whatever the size, making sure those two groups are talking to each other. You know, that was, I think, one of the things we saw going back to the early days of ETFs was all too often you had marketing on one island, you had PR on another island, and maybe to absolutely stretch this metaphor to the breaking point, Every once in a while, one team would put a message in a bottle and hope that it floated all the way across to the other island and was received. Uh, didn't always work like that. And, and you all too often found out that both groups were just working on entirely different tracks and might not be focused on the same funds or the same people at the same time. So you'd have these great PR wins or marketing would have these great campaigns out there. But if the other team wasn't supporting, it wasn't really reaching its full potential. So I think when things work, we most often see those two groups really communicating well with one another so that they understand the priorities on both sides. Because for marketing, you know, priorities there are often set from the C-suite. PR, you know, there, there's a similar conversation taking place there, but we can also bring some valuable insight from what we're seeing and hearing in our conversations with the media. Because a lot of these reporters, these editors, these producers, these hosts, they're very plugged in, and they can tell you, you know, Here's what my listeners are responding to. Here's what my readers are asking for more of. And that's the end audience that we're ultimately trying to reach, whether we're PR, whether we're marketing. Those are the investors on the other side of those conversations. So knowing specifically what they want and sometimes what they don't can really help inform both teams to do the best possible job that they can. Chris, just a couple of minutes left here. I have to ask you, can you talk about the importance of social media? You, you know I'm out on Twitter. I, I love being out mm -hmm. there. But I've said before, there's no question in my mind, this is a clear advantage for smaller issuers. They don't have to go through all the layers of compliance and legal like larger fund companies do. They can much more easily engage. How important is that? I think it is important, and I think it's a, a distinct competitive advantage if you're able to be nimble. I think you have to be careful that nimble doesn't turn into, you know, possibly breaking the rules and hoping for the best. But I think, you know, there's more of a creativity that you often see with uh, some of the smaller issuers, frankly, just because there's less bureaucracy that they often have to work through. But you see a number of these newer, smaller uh, ETF issuers using their Twitter feeds as kind of de facto news sources. They're they're sharing interesting statistics and studies and articles that might not even talk about their funds and, and most of the time don't because they can't for compliance purposes. But they're turning themselves into resources for their investors, for potential investors, for the media to come to, to follow, to engage with. And yet you're absolutely right. That's a, that's a huge advantage if you're able to you know, put in the, the manpower and, and the time. I will say sometimes... Social media can be a bit of, um, it can take on more importance than what the end results might deliver for you. You don't want to spend, you know, 50% of your time on social media. But if you can carve out the time to build something interesting, there's some real pluses there for your team. And Chris, just about a minute left. Another question that I, I see come up quite often as it relates to ETF marketing is whether people pay for appearances on places like CNBC or Bloomberg or to be quoted in Barron's or wherever. Can can you briefly offer any insight into that, how, how that process works? Yeah, my short answer is I wish it worked that way because I'd be you know, lurking <laughs> outside their offices with a suitcase full of cash. But 
the the longer answer is you know does it hurt to have a, a, an advertising relationship with some of these big outlets no does it you know guarantee that you're going to get covered no you know there's there's a merit based uh, approach to what we do on the PR side. There's a reason that you see it referred to as earned media when we talk about most of the things that we're putting together for people. It's, it's earned because of the quality of the solution, the quality of the approach, the quality of the thought leadership that the spokesperson brings to the table. Um, if you don't have those things, you know, you could have all the money in the world and you're still, you're, you're not going to be Profiled, you're not going to get significant attention uh, from those outlets in a way that's going to be meaningful for you. They will always be happy to talk to you about advertising arrangements, but it's not going to make it any more likely that the reporters uh, are going to pick up the phone and, and want to profile you or your funds. Well, Chris, really interesting perspective this week. Again, fantastic having you on the podcast. I'm glad we were able to do this. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, a lot of fun, Nate. I appreciate it. Thanks. That was Chris Sullivan, president of McMillan Sullivan Communications. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Doug Yonas, head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange. We're going to go around the world of ETFs. And then Henry Jim, editor of ETF Hearsay, is going to tell us about how he stays on top of every single ETF filing. He'll also talk about his involvement in the development of over 100 ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.